Hi listeners, stories have so much power and so does whoever controls the narrative. It is time that we dissect and analyze these stories. I am Vipul and this is Vogue Tales. Hi everyone, on the morning of August 23, 1973, an escaped convict crossed the streets of Stockholm and entered a bank. This robbery hostage situation is behind the term Stockholm Syndrome. More about the history later, but first, what is Stockholm Syndrome? It is a condition in which hostages develop a psychological bond with their captors during captivity. And one of the most famous stories which comes to mind when we talk about Stockholm Syndrome is Beauty and the Beast. Though originally published in 1740 by Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve, the most famous version of the tale, La Belle et la Bête, was produced by French writer Jeanne-Marie La Prince Beaumont in the 1750s. There have been multiple adaptations, and one of the most popular one is Disney's version, which was released in 1991. Disney also made Belle as one of the official princesses. But for today's episode, we will cover the version by Beaumont. So, it's story time! A wealthy merchant had three daughters, the youngest of which was admired widely for her beauty and came to be known as the Little Beauty when she was young, and as she grew up, she still went by the name of Beauty, which made her sisters very jealous. Her older sisters were far prouder and let it be known that they would only marry an earl or duke. When their father lost his fortune, the two sisters found it difficult to adjust to a life of penury. But the loyal and modest Beauty sets about finding ways to help her father around the house. After a year of this, their merchant father receives a letter telling him that a ship containing some of his property has arrived in port. So he sets off to meet it. He asks his daughters what gifts they would like him to bring back for them. The two eldest daughters ask for expensive gowns and jewels, but Beauty requests a simple rose. Their father sets off, but after a legal hearing concerning the ship's property, he leaves with nothing and begins the despondent journey home. On his way, he gets lost in the woods and comes upon a house where he takes refuge. This great house appears to be empty and the merchant falls asleep in it and wakes up to find that breakfast had been prepared for him. Going out into the garden, he remembers his promise to beauty, so he plucks a single rose from the bush, at which point a fearsome beast appears, declaring that he is the owner of the house and that the merchant has insulted his hospitality by stealing a rose like this. The beast says he will kill the merchant, but the merchant begs for his life, and the beast says he will allow the merchant to live as long as he returns home and brings one of his daughters to be killed in his stead. Failing that, in three months' time, the merchant must return and face his fate. The merchant, seizing the opportunity to see his daughters again, 
agrees, and the beast gives him a bag full of coins to be on his way. When he arrives home, the merchant keeps the money a secret but tells his children about his promise to the beast. When Beauty hears about it, she says she will follow her father back to the palace of the beast since she won't allow him to be killed for her as it was because of her he plucked the rose. At the palace, the beast sees that both Beauty and her father had arrived, and so he dismisses the father who reluctantly and despondently returned home, convinced that the beast will eat up his daughter at the palace. But the beast treats Beauty well, who in turn is kind to the beast. She admits that she finds him physically ugly, but she sees that he has a good heart underneath. She says to the beast that in front of all his kindness, his deformity is hardly noticed, and that there are many men that deserve to be called beast more than him, and she prefers him just as he is to those who under a human form hide a treacherous, corrupt, and ungrateful heart. He asks her to marry him, but she says no. Not content with this, the beast continues to ask Beauty every night if she will marry him, but each night she says no. Beauty, learning that her older sisters have married and her father is all alone at home, asks the beast if she might go and visit him. The beast agrees, since he cannot bear to see Beauty unhappy, but as long as she agrees to return after a week. Beauty agrees to this, but when she is at home with her father, her sisters, jealous of her and the finest clothes given to her by the beast, while they have married horrible husbands, return home and conspire to use emotional blackmail to make beauty stay away from the beast for longer than a week. They hope that by doing so, the beast will be enraged and will come and devour beauty. But after she had been home for 10 nights, beauty grows ill at ease. Why did she refuse to marry beast just because he is ugly? He is kind and caring and worships her and wants to make her happy. She would be happier with him than her sisters are with their selfish and cruel husbands. So she resolves to return to the palace. But when she returns there, she finds the beast on the floor, unconscious. Bringing him around, he reveals that when she didn't return as promised, he resolves to starve himself. Now she had returned and he can die happy but Beauty says she will marry him and longs for him to live. No sooner has the Beauty said this than the Beast disappears and is replaced by a handsome young prince who tells her that an evil fairy cast a spell over him, transforming him into a hideous creature. He would only be freed from the spell when a young woman agreed to marry him. Beauty had freed him from the wicked spell. A beautiful fairy appears and uses magic to transport Beauty's father and her sisters to the palace. The fairy turns Beauty's two older sisters into statues so that they must forever look on their younger sister's happiness. This is the punishment for their malice. Beauty and the prince, formerly known as the Beast, get married and live happily ever after. The End Growing up, I liked Belle because she was interested in books, traveling, and adventure more than waiting around for a prince to fall in love with her and save her from her dreary life. However, now that I read the story again, her love for books is merely a plot device used to create romance between her and the beast rather than a means by which she expands her intellect. Instead of being at the core of her personality, 
Belle's supposed intelligence is an artifice that conceals her true value to the story as a mothering figure. Belle is unable to be seen as a fully developed woman because she is most important as a maternal figure to the men in her life rather than as an independent woman or a peer. She is traded by her impoverished father for safety and material wealth and sent to live with a terrifying stranger. Beaumont's story emphasizes the nobility in beauty's act of self-sacrifice. So beauty is sincere, kind, self-sacrificing, and sweet. She's got every possible virtue compared to her proud sisters. It is said that the story of the beauty and the beast was meant for girls who would likely have their marriages arranged. Arranged marriages were common in France at the time, and Beauty and the Beast was sort of a handbook for young brides entering into marriages with hideous older men, and if they were lucky, with a good kind heart underneath. But what Disney did was romanticize the abusive relationship Belle was in. Much of their relationship for the majority of the film is grounded in power the beast holds over Belle. Belle is clearly in a dangerous relationship that should not be a model for any kind of audience, especially young children. Despite the problematic issues in Disney's version of the story, even after looking it under a microscope and dissecting and analyzing it, it is a visually stunning, engaging, and entertaining movie. I don't mean to discourage anyone from watching or enjoying the movie, but to encourage viewers to be critical and mindful of the movie's messages and narrative. Children can internalize the story itself and remember how Belle acts in it, especially since Belle is now marketed as a role model in the Disney Princess collection. Interestingly, all outward pretense to Belle being an avid reader have been purged from her image in the Disney Princess collection, for she is now most often marketed holding a rose rather than a book. It can be said that the story has a beautiful message about the power of love and the importance of valuing character. A person does not have to be necessarily good-looking or young or immediately likable or whatever else you are hoping for in a partner. But of course, once Beauty realizes she loves the beast, he transforms into a handsome prince. Heaven forfend that an ugly person should have true love. What a relief that they can both now be beautiful together. So, the moral of the story is, beauty's reward for prizing virtue over physical good looks is a physically good-looking husband. Okay. Coming back to their relationship, beauty only comes to love the beast because she is placed under house arrest at his home. She initially doesn't want to be there. And this is where the Stockholm Syndrome comes in and whether you agree with that assessment or not, her captivity is a plot point. So here is some history about Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is a misogynistic lie by sexist men in power with disgruntled egos. A lie that a police psychiatrist told to discredit a woman who spoke about her fear and distrust of the police who had repeatedly risked her life. On the morning of August 23, 1973, there was a bank robbery in Sweden and a hostage situation. Nils Bejero was a police psychiatrist and the negotiator working on a bank robber hostage case. One of the hostages was named Kristen Enmark, a bank employee. 
Enmark was outspoken about the police botching the case and specifically named Bejiro in this criticism. He was a hostage negotiator but had refused to speak with her when she requested. Enmark actively fought for her survival as the police botched the case terribly. Since the negotiator refused to talk with her, she gave a live radio interview from the bank, saying that the police were playing with their lives. When that didn't work, she contacted the prime minister and asked him to intervene, advocating for the robbers to be allowed to leave with herself and another willing hostage who they would set free once they had gotten away. She thought this was the safest option available. The prime minister told her to be content with the idea that she would die at her post. And Mark replied, I don't want to be a dead hero. Six days later, when the standoff ended, it was evident that the victims had formed some kind of a positive relationship with their captors. Police tear-gassed the vault and got the robbers, paraded them up and down the street for the crowd. Enmark was furious, and when she interviewed on the radio, she not only criticized the police, but specifically named Bejereau. In response, Bejereau dismissed her comments as the product of a syndrome he invented on the spot, Stockholm Syndrome. Bejereau claimed that Enmark's fear of the police was driven by her emotional or sexual attachment to her captors. Bejereau still had not spoken to Enmark, not even once, never bothered to examine her mental state or ask her why she trusted her captors more than the authorities. The media supported this quote-unquote diagnosis largely because Enmark didn't fit their misogynistic standards of how women victim should act. She didn't act traumatized enough for their taste, but was instead suspiciously clear and alert and a vocal self-advocate. Stockholm Syndrome was invented to discredit women victims of violence by a psychiatrist with an obvious conflict of interest, whose first instinct was to silence the woman questioning his authority. In almost 50 years since its invention, most of the diagnoses have been made by media, and it's been largely used to discredit women victims of violence. The Stockholm Syndrome has widely been known to be associated with women and has painted women to be weak damsels in distress. Think about it. Can you think of a single story or movie in which a man falls in love with his captor? The syndrome enabled multiple generations to think of women as mentally weaker and incapable of having a rational thought process. However, psychology suggests that forming a bond with a captor is a survival mechanism. When your life is in hands of another person, your instincts will tell you not to do anything that might piss them off. And the syndrome does not recognize the human instinct to survive, which is found in both men and women, contrary to what Nils Bejereau might have you believe. And it really calls into question how we think of Stockholm Syndrome and how there are so many phrases and ideas in our culture that we don't examine enough, especially for the subtle ways they undermine women's agency. Stockholm Syndrome is not a recognized diagnosis or disorder and there are no accepted criteria for diagnosing it. But that doesn't stop armchair psychiatrists from misapplying the idea to things like women in abusive relationships. Stockholm Syndrome is not the same as abuse. In fact, it's a potentially very flawed idea that fails to encapsulate 
all the complexities of human emotion, survival responses, and psychology. The actual accounts of the Stockholm situation are far more about the hostages learning to see their captors as people and developing empathy. It is essentially human nature for someone in a situation to feel and inspire empathy for their captors, which would better increase their chances for survival. And to reduce it to a syndrome is a way of reducing women's feelings and humanity to something both outside of their control as well as equivalent to mental illness and insanity. The fact that the term Stockholm Syndrome was coined as a way to explain away women's experience and agency and even used to dismiss other women's accountability for their own decisions is very telling, but honestly, not surprising. Society goes out of its way all the time to make women seem unhinged or stupid or just incapable of their own decisions and romanticize abusive relationships. Let's not allow that to continue. On that note, bye for now. Let me know your thoughts on the story and our discussion by emailing me on woketalespodcast at gmail.com or through social media at woketalespodcast on Instagram and woketalespod on Twitter. And please rate, review and like Woketales Podcast and don't forget to subscribe so you can easily access our weekly stories. If you have any story recommendations or if you want to come dissect and analyze a story with me, give me a shout out on email or social media because whatever you do, keep dissecting and keep analyzing. <laughs>